Our understanding of gender and sexuality is often limited to narrow labels. But what happens when we desire beyond historically entrenched borders? And how can something as random and individual as human desire be contained within a conceptual box? Renowned German philosopher and journalist Carolyn Emke has written a book called How We Desire, where she explores the way that these norms restrict us. Her conversation with Fenella Kernerbone at All About Women in 2019 reflects on this attachment to these clear and defined lines, particularly around sexuality, and tries to really bust our thinking right out of these rigid boundaries. Um, thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks uh, for having me here. I'm very honoured uh, and really delighted to see you all. Um, I should say it's my first time in Australia. Um, I've been on uh, uh, a trip here from Adelaide to Melbourne to Sydney, and at each um, event uh, that uh, I was invited to, there was this beginning with these acknowledgements. And um, I, I apologize if, if uh, you thought about this all the time because you've been listening to this all the time and it's become a ritual for you, I suppose. But for me, it was new. So I felt I wanted to take a minute of actually thinking about what that means, uh, to me at least, when I'm here as your guest and I hear these acknowledgements to the indigenous, to the First Nations, and to their land. And I have to admit, um, it's, it's an incredibly important gesture, it's an incredibly important ritual that uh, you are all you know, dedicating yourself to, and yet at the same time, I feel it feels so painful that I cannot just listen to it and go on with a discussion. And, and, and I have to say, everything is... I mean, there's something really deeply right about that gesture. There's something deeply right about acknowledging we were not meant to be here in the first place. We were not the ones who were invited to come. Uh, this is territory and place that was stolen. It's a place that has, you know, deeply violent and extremely painful history. One that was not acknowledged for a very, very, very long time. And so, that is what I think is so right about that gesture, what's so right about this acknowledgement, and yet at the same time there's something wrong about it, because I always wonder, well, what does it mean to say thank you that I can be here, and not expect that someone would actually say, no, you're not supposed to be here. So each time I've been listening to this, I was somehow uh, quietly hoping that somebody would protest. <laughs> and so I think what is, what is so right about that acknowledgement is that it makes me feel really uncomfortable. It makes me feel really not invited 
while accepting an invitation. And so I, I cannot speak today without acknowledging my ambivalence about this, um, and yet thanking you for the fact that the acknowledgement exists. Um, so... Um, so if there was someone here <laughs> who would uh, like to protest that we're standing here, I would certainly understand. Um, I do think there should be the space for someone to say, I prefer not to give you that space. Um, being in that space, I very much hope that I can... Uh, that, that, that I won't fail in acknowledging the tradition of storytelling that comes with that First Nation. And so uh, I give you a little bit an idea of my kind of storytelling that I did in this book, and then we will have a conversation, hopefully, about this. Um, so the book is the book that I would have liked to have as a teenager. Uh, I grew up in Germany, in the north of Germany, in the 70s and 80s, and there literally weren't any uh, books, there weren't any films, there wasn't any vocabulary even, there weren't any images uh, for queer desire. Um, when I grew up, I knew homosexuals existed. I mean, it, I, you know, but it was like a very, very rare species that lived somewhere in the desert, <laughs> And you can read about it, you know, in a you know, natural history book. It's just you never ever meet one. <laughs> and so that was the kind of, you know, knowledge somehow that was conveyed about homosexuality when I grew up. And so the book tries to do two things. It tries to narrate. It tries to really just be storytelling of the time that I went to school, um, of uh, the time as uh, a teenager that is haunted by sentiments and emotions and desires that you can't really get hold of because you don't have words for it. And I think that's what all teenagers have in common, whether they're queer or not, is that they feel overwhelmed by affects that they cannot really grasp, they cannot really understand, they cannot really read. And I think one of the biggest misunderstandings about desire and about affects is that uh, it's always suggested that we just have them and then it's clear what they are. Whereas we might have them and not at all know what they are. We might be overwhelmed by a certain kind of desires without really understanding what it's all about. And so what I try in this book, I try to give um, you know, accounts, stories, examples, thick descriptions of uh, these... You know, I thought horrible years uh, at high school as a teenager about all these rituals that mark you as, you know, properly female or properly male, as properly belonging to the right group in class or not belonging. All these rituals of exclusion and inclusion that I think we all experienced uh, at school. Um, so I describe them and I describe my own extremely slow, I should say, extremely slow understanding of my own queer desire. 
Um, and at the same time, the book is an essay. Uh, the book um, is, uh, tries to analyze um, in which sense um, we all as humans need scripts, we need role models, we need vocabulary, we need images uh, in order to develop uh, fantasies, uh, in order to develop an understanding of who we want to be. And um, so uh, the book is an essay, in this, it's sort of a political essay, because it describes how difficult it is for people who belong to minority um, uh, in the sense that in society all the scripts, all the images, all the words for the self-understanding of that minority are being repressed, are silenced, are tabooed, are excluded, or even worse, are criminalized. Um, and so it's, it's both at the same time, the book switches between one and the other, it's storytelling and it's trying to explain um, what you know, desire is about and what scripts are about. Having said that, I think we just start talking about it. Excellent. Round of applause. <laughs> um, which leads me to my, my first comment, Carolyn, which is I wish I actually had this book as well when I was growing up because I think it would have made a whole lot more sense about the, the messiness of being a teenager and a child. So um, it was good to, it was great to read it. As I said, it's become a really good mate of mine and I felt strange to be, I felt strange, I said, said this to you before, I feel a bit weird telling you, but I feel a bit of an affinity with what you went through as a child and the stories that you tell. So again, if you haven't read this book, I do, I do recommend it. Let, let's try and understand um, what actually happens in the book. Um, I suppose there's, a, there's a, a number of different themes, but one of them is that you weave the story of a school friend of yours through the entire book, and it's a, a young man called Daniel. Why was his story the catalyst for you to, to start talk about, to talk about desire? Yes. Um, I had this classmate of mine called Daniel um, who committed suicide uh, at the age of 18. Um, if I made ask how many of you in the audience have had someone in school or within your family or circle of friends who committed suicide? Yeah. Um, I don't know um, how that was for you, but for me, I, I was haunted ever since. Uh, I, 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 I really didn't quite understand... Uh, I, I did understand, I could understand, or that I think that's what I tried to do in the book. I tried to figure out what the reasons were for his pain, for his sorrow, uh, and, and his, his inability to, to uh, express himself in a life. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do think that I do understand what his motives were, I think I didn't understand why I survived. Mm. Uh, and so the book is trying to reconstruct our time uh, at school and uh, our struggling with desire and not really having a language for it, not really growing up in a culture where that was considered a possible um, or even more unimaginable, a happy life. Mm. Uh, when I grew up and when Daniel grew up, 
uh, the only image. There's something apparently we we got these things flying around. It's confetti. Uh, it's okay. When uh, <laughs> when uh, when we grew up, uh, the only films uh, uh, that existed that had gay characters in them, either they were beaten up or they killed themselves. Mm. And so it wasn't really a horizon for a happy life. And so that is indeed, as you say, it's one thread in the book. I, 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 I try to tell the story of Daniel and parallel, I try to tell the story of my own understanding of my own desire. Mm. And you also, I mean, throughout this kind of conversation, you, you talk about the, and you brought it up just before, the sort of the rituals that children go through that we all kind of recognise, this, this notion that if you can't fit in, then you will be excluded. So this, how you are included and how you are excluded can be incredibly brutal. The hierarchies that go on throughout the school. What is it about those rituals, that uh, those types of interactions that kids have that is a, an interesting way for us to help understand how we form our desires? Yeah, I think it's to, to some extent we see like in a microscope, we can see in these rituals all those configurations of power and powerlessness of speech and speechlessness, all the rituals of constructing an other as different, as less worthy, as, you know, not belonging. Um, all these processes of, you know, construction of another and, um, you know, demonizing them um, that we are struggling with when, you're, when we're grown up, mm. uh, we see them already, uh, as I say, I mean, as, as if under microscope. And I think what's so scary about... Uh, these rituals uh, of, of these games of you know, initiation of, of inclusion and exclusion is that at the time when they're happening, when you're so young, you don't really understand the markers. You don't really understand you know, all the questions of class, of race, of religion, all these codes and norms that are sort of at that age almost unconsciously reproduced, um, I, I think are so scary because you don't really have the terms yet or for analyzing what's happening, and yet uh, they do shape you sometimes for the rest of your lives. Mm -hmm. the, you, there's a particular incidence in the book where you... There keeps to be this confetti coming from the ceiling, yeah. so it kind of... It's making this a happy conversation <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> it's weirding me out. Um, but there's, there's this moment in the book, though, when, when there's a young guy that's being tormented and a teacher actually joins in as well. And you talk about this, this moment that, although you didn't step in, that you would never not step in again. That speechlessness that you talked about before, that the, the responsibility that potentially that you, you, you couldn't mark at that time, as you were saying. Yeah, no, I think speechlessness is actually a theme that... that I think runs through my entire professional life, or that's something that I write about in every single book that I write about has something to do with speechlessness. And there's all kinds of speechlessness in this book. One uh, indeed has to do with the age, with a particular phase of puberty, of not really yet having the vocabulary or the understanding. Um, <clears throat> uh, the other one has to do with ideology, with the political framing, with the political and you know, co constellations of power, uh, of class, race, uh, ethnicity, and, and so, and that particular speechlessness that you mentioned is the one that has to do with guilt, 
Mm. I think I should describe that, that there was a scene that, that I witnessed as a teenager on a school trip, and a circle of boys w were tormenting another boy. It, it, it was... It was in the beginning, it might have been fun, but then it was clear that it wasn't funny at all. They were just actually really abusing him, sexually abusing and physically. I mean, it, it was a very ambiguous scene, but definitely abuse. And everybody was cheering, and everybody was standing around and clapping and applauding. And I saw it, and I was appalled absolutely appalled by it, but I didn't do anything about it. And it was funny when I, when I it wasn't funny, but when I, when I started writing the book, I don't know how that is for the other writers here in the audience, but when you start writing a book, you know there is something that you don't want to write about, but you think you have to write about it. And this was the scene that I feared most because I did not want to uh, think again in the position of the girl that did not stop this scene from happening. I walked away, um, but I didn't say anything at the moment, and I didn't definitely didn't intervene. And I, th I, I think it was what was so painful about it was my own failure. I mean, my complete failure of of, of not acting on it. Mm -hmm. But again, it's that, that I was I was thinking about it when I was reading that scene that I wondered whether or not this might have been some kind of prelude you know, to you and your later career, being a war correspondent and actually going in there and, and telling the stories of the people that you've met, being able to name the things that they want to talk about, for example. Um, it is true. I think it's... it's uh, I mean, the idea of being able to uh, give, a, give a name, uh, there's, there's this uh, fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin, I don't know how to pronounce this properly, uh, is it? Okay. Rumpelstiltskin? Okay, that's the one. Yeah. Um, I'll say that with my most Okay, so accent. you ever say it when yeah, I need yeah. the word Rumpel again? Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, so there is this fairy tale of... You have Rumpel, to say it. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin. Okay. <laughs> and, th and the trick about the fairy tale is that it... Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, is... Has all the power about you as long as you don't know its name. And once you can... You know, once you know its name, it loses all the power. So um, I'm usually not a great fan of magical thinking, but uh, <laughs> I, I do think that the ability to give an account, the ability to uh, put something into a story, um, uh, you know... It's, it's, it's absolutely it, imperative. Yes. It's funny because, I mean, I, I know you just talked about it, but I want to... This conversation is about how we desire, so I want to I want to get into it a little a little bit more because, again, reading your book, like, I didn't know until I'd left high school that I was gay or that I was queer because there wasn't any language for it. There was no knowledge, if that makes sense. There were no images. There was nothing. And you talk about this a lot in the book, about why these types of things are so important to be able to, again, name our desire. So tell me a little bit about what this, unpack how this actually means for you. Well, I can give you, I mean, I can give you examples. I mean, it was, at, at my time, it was very difficult. If you watched a film and, you know, the, 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 or if you read Jane Austen, which is something we had to read. Um, Still do, actually. No, it was always, it was always, always straight couples. And I think for straight people, that is 
very, very easy to watch because you know who to identify with and you know who to fall in love with in these stories. Well, maybe you don't like the people, but you know, nevertheless, the general uh, configuration is such that you know your place. And uh, you can have empathy, and you you you, you know you 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 watch along. Um, whereas when I watched films, I, I wasn't really I was never really sure um, if I, I I always identified with a male character. Um, because and I most don't, of them were male characters. Is that most, yeah, no. The, the funny thing, I, I think I identified with the male characters not because I wanted to be a man, but because they were the really active ones. I mean, they were the ones who had the advantage, you know, adventures, who had the horse, who could, you know, do whatever. And so, so I think if you wanted to identify with someone who could do something, someone who was free in the sense of being able to you know, transgress boundaries and, and, and you know, live, it, live an interesting life, you identify it with a male character. And just by coincidence, that meant that you would fall in love mm. with a female heroine. So um, I think um, it's, it's really underestimated what that does to you. And I remember I was recently watching, I don't know, some stupid American crime series. And it was the first time that I saw a character... Uh, on television that I really totally identified with. And she wasn't gay. It wasn't about a figure being gay, but it was about a figure being so, I don't know, complex and real at the same time that mm. I could identify with. So I think, for me, it was uh, to listen to classical music. It meant going uh, and, and listening to um, you know, operas or, or, or oratoriums to discover figures and characters and voices that, I, that were so um, not fitting <laughs> uh, that I could relate. The, they weren't the cookie cutter, as they, they might say. Actually, you, you brought up opera. I, you know how normally sometimes I read books by philosophers and I need a dictionary? Does anybody know what that feels like, right? You go, what are they talking about? I need a dictionary. I had to, I had to have my phone with me and Spotify so I could um, listen to the music that you keep referencing yeah. throughout the whole book. One like should maybe say it is a book about desire, <laughs> yeah. really a book about <laughs> desire, um, but it's also about, uh, about uh, music. Uh, and uh, it was, um, for me, I, I, what was key about writing a book about gay desire was that if I write a book about desire. If I write something that I felt I would have needed as a teenager and didn't have, then I really want to write about all my queer and nerdish desires, and classical <laughs> music is one of them. So even though I know that many, many people in the LGBTIQ community find it absolutely absurd that someone would write about classical music, uh, you can skip great. those pages, but you <laughs> Uh, you should still. But the thing it. is that you, it, it's not a, a fully musical theoretical text or anything like that. But the parallels between the understanding, the conversation about desire, and the way that music is structured, classical music, for example, is really it's, it's really interesting. Well, um, for me, what was in interesting, uh, if I may, I may, of course. Okay, I love well, speaking it's, about it's music. Actually your no, story. no, I, lo yeah. I, I love. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sitting here. Uh, 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 no, it's it's. I think the first time that I really learned about normativity, about what norms are, uh, what sort of motifs or themes are that st 
structure an entire space was in music. And it was beautiful to learn that within music lessons instead of learning it on the street mm. or learning it by laws that discriminate you. And so what I learned about cla from classical music was that, yes, there are norms, yes, there are motifs that structure the beginning of a composition or a musical piece, but there are variations to the norms, and they're as important as the norm is. And so for me, everything really that I learned about uh, respect uh, for myself uh, was from studying music. Mm. Um, so so it's, it's not just about the joy and the love for hearing music, it's also about that. And you may read the book like you did and listening to the music. But it's really also understanding um, how this whole sort of... How, how, the, how the norms and codes that permanently, permanently structure all of our desires uh, and, and, and understanding of ourselves, whether straight or not straight, um, how they can be subverted, how they can be uh, uh, deconstructed, how they can be ridiculed also to some extent. Because the funny thing about norms is that the norm always suggests that the majority of people adhere to the norm or belong to the norm, whereas actually that's not really the case. There's many, many more people who don't fit into the norm than the norm claims. And um, so, so I, 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 I try to combine the book, uh, these two desires. Let's talk about that. What are then those norms and those codes that are restricting us? Because let's face it, we are always, we're put into, we're put into boxes from a very early age. You are a girl, you are a boy, you will marry a man, you will marry a woman. This is going to be your life. And if you detract from those particular norms, it can be a funny old world for you as well. So what are some of those norms? And then what is it that we can do to... to to allow our desire to, to live and breathe in a different kind of way. Well, look, I mean, I only have to be in Australia for 10 days and watch television to figure out what the norms of masculinity are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell us. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I know this is being streamed, so I can't use the words that I would like to use now, but <laughs> boy. Um, no, so, no, of course. Oh, I mean, I think, I think... Um, it, it's, it's so in this ideology of masculinity, of femininity, of class, of race, and the intersectionality of all these is so inbuilt. Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's sort of penetrating uh, not just laws and legislations and the setup uh, of our parliaments, uh, the, the, you know, the, the way we're being sort of paid or, or uh, uh, you know, or employed, but evidently it also uh, runs through our bodies. It, I think it, it generates a certain self-understanding um, of what we find attractive, of what we find um, exciting, of who we find exciting. So I think um, in our very bodies, in our very gestures, in our practices, uh, it, it's, it's 
Yeah, it's filled with codes and norms that hierarchize and prioritize certain kinds of masculinities, certain kinds of embodiments of what a good citizen is supposed to look like. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, we, we, we can't say that there's a space where, you know, where it's, where it's or there's no vacuum, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. It's also, I mean, it's interesting because the, the, the thing that you point out really clearly throughout the book is this, this, the, this way that we're being brought up, for example, during sex, sex education or whatever it's, it's called, is that it's, it's a very, this is how it goes, this is how it goes, this is how it all works, and there's no other way of kind of expressing yourself, and that you're going to be stuck in a particular category for the rest of your life, that there's not a, that there, there but there oh, is. I wasn't even a category. I didn't even exist. No. So I, I don't know how sex education is here in Australia, but in Germany, it's. I think it's, I was pulled it's out. It's very, of very, very mechanical. Yes. Um, and the only thing it's about it's about reproduction. I mean, it's about uh, reproduction. Mm. It's, about, it's about how not to get pregnant. That was the only, <laughs> only aim of the sex education that we had. Um, I think it's still the same here. Am I wrong or right? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, evidently, you know, gay or queer desire didn't exist, trans people didn't exist. Um, let's forget the tiny little details that everybody in the, in the school book was white. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, I mean, the idea of diversity and sex education, that really was too much. Mm. So, <laughs> uh, so that didn't exist. But it's, I mean, we all laugh about this, but I think at the age, it's really scary. Mm. It's absolutely scary, and um, I think, um, I mean, Suhaila so said that earlier today, I think we have to, when we have the discussion on Me Too, when we have the discussion on rape, when we have the discussion on sexual violence, we really also need to have the discussion on sexuality, on desire, on the ambiguity of, I don't know, all these kinds of potential communications that we are having when we engage with another. And, and I think what's so tragic to some extent about sexual education is that it's so, so politically instrumentalized, at least in Germany, I don't know how this is here, by um, deeply political the right radical movements, by the right-wing populace, by the evangelical movement. Uh, it's, it's, they, they, uh, you know, it, there's a whole ideology uh, and a campaign about it that tries to suppress the conversation on desire and on on sexuality. And I think it's really damaging. Um, it's also uh, pathologizing. Uh, it and it tries to suggest that it's the LGBTIQ community that would somehow steal infancy away from children mm, by talking mm, mm. Uh, about sexuality. Um, because queer desire is always politicised. Uh, it seems to be, anyway, whereas heterosexual desire, perhaps less so, or something. No, I think the funny, I think that the funny fear about this is that they seem to think if kids hear about the existence of queer desire, that they would immediately become Okay. That's what happened to me. I saw an article and that was I was in. Yeah, you know, but like what's that. yeah, but well, you know what's really funny is I only had straight books and it didn't you know it didn't have that effect. <laughs> so um, 
<laughs> no, but there is, but there is something politically interesting, and I would like, if I may, uh, I would like to say that. I mean, the idea that the confrontation with someone who's different, different uh, because it's a person of color, different because it's a trans person, different because it's a Muslim. Um, there is this right-wing, right-radical discourse that seems to su suggest that just by seeing another, you become that way. Mm. Mm. I mean, the whole Islamophobic discourse on uh, women wearing a veil is as if only by looking at a Muslim woman wearing a veil, I would immediately also you know, be wearing it and it would have, you know, horrific effect on society. So I think it's not just about sexual education, it's not just about sexuality, it's not just about LGBTIQ, um, it's really about uh, producing a narrative of fear about difference. And I think that is where we all have to be extremely alarmed and really aware we have to, at the moment, defend democratic societies as pluralist societies. We have to defend that difference isn't you know, necessarily something about normative inequality. So, so mm. I think it's, it's, that, that's, a, that's an important issue, I think. It, abs it absolutely is. Um, could, could you give me some perspective, as a war correspondent for so long, the conversation that we're having, of course, is pertinent for here in Australia and for Germany, but you have insight into other, other places um, in, in crisis as well. Give, can I, just a bit of insight as to what you have experienced and what you have seen when, through your travels. You mean generally? Oh, yeah, just the whole thing. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, for example... I think I would have... Um, when my father passed away, it was the first dead body that I saw that wasn't mutilated. So if you ask me the question, like, what is, has it meant as a war reporter, is... I don't know, it's... it's, it's it's very, very difficult. To, it's very difficult to explain. It would end the cheery uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, conversation we're having. Maybe I could answer by uh, saying what I learned from it. Yes. Um, very often, people say you have to be obsessed with violence, uh, or you have to be cynical, or, or violence has to give you a kick if you do that kind of job. And I would always say, that's such a bizarre understanding of what traveling to regions of crisis and speaking to traumatized people is all about. Um, and it's, it's, it's not that you get used to it. Uh, you can't. You, you just, as appalled and disgusted and disturbed every single time again. Um, and I think uh, what I learned and what was, I think, also important for my writing was uh, uh, that where, wherever you go, the people that you meet, 
Um, they've never, ever in my entire life asked me for direct practical help. They never asked me to give them money or to give them food or to take them with me in my car. But they over and over again asked me, will you write this down? Mm. So to give an account, to reaffirm somewhat the, their humanity that has been denied because they were being raped, because they were tortured, because they were deported, because they were shot at. Um, it, 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 it seems such an existential uh, experience to be denied one's subjectivity, to be denied one's individuality, that, that if somebody comes and just listens, uh, and I could, I could possibly be even be a really bad writer, just the fact that I sit down and listen, I think, is something that uh, includes them back again into universal we. And I think that's, that for me was probably the most important uh, lesson that I learned. Mm, thank you. Um, this book was published in 2013. Um, it's, what year is it now? 19. It's 2019. Uh, it's 20. Is it 2019 now? Oh my God! So it was only it was only translated into English just last mm -hmm. year. There are so many conversations throughout this book that we haven't got time to get into sure. today. But I mean, so much has changed. The the conversation about gay marriage in Germany that's changed. IVF, for example, has changed. So tell tell me what has changed for you? Yeah, I think on, on one hand, probably if I would write the book again now, I, I wouldn't write a totally different book, but I think there's, there's I mean, even the vocabulary had, ha, has changed. Mm. So when I wrote the book, I didn't use the word queer in German. Uh, and so I think each generation, you know, searches, uh, for forms of distinguishing themselves from the previous generation. So they look for new words and they look for new claims to identity. So I think probably people who would read it now would say, what kind of language is she? Or how old is she? Um, <laughs> so there, I, think th I think there's aspects to that I would write differently. But then politically so much has changed because at the moment, um, I know we are all about women and we're supposed to be very optimistic and empowering each other. Uh, and yet, I think, you know, internationally, we are living through an extremely complicated phase. Mm. Uh, we have a number of uh, governments and regimes and heads of state uh, with an utterly chauvinistic, authoritarian, racist ideology and agenda uh, we have a number of governments uh, that uh, are explicitly on an anti-enlightenment, anti-modern. When they say anti-modern, very often they either mean anti-Jewish or they mean anti-gay mm. um, agenda. We have Putin in Russia, we have Bolsonaro in Brazil now, um, we have you know, Erdogan in Turkey, we have Trump uh, in the US. So I, I do think between the time when I wrote the book, 2012 I wrote the book, um, and now, um, I mean, at least my entire understanding of the public sphere within Europe and within many other parts of the world has totally changed. Mm. Um, there's, an, there's an open proud, 
racism out there, uh, there, there's a form of shamelessness about sexism. Maybe about, I don't know if, it's, if sexism would, would, would yes, I think there's still the shamelessness about sexism, but um, so I do think there is an exhibitionism of cold-heartedness, in particular on the social web, but also elsewhere, that at the time when I wrote the book, I would have never, ever thought that people would be able to speak the way they speak nowadays in mm. Europe. And you're seeing this on the street today. This is happening for you as well. Uh, it's happening, yes, it's happening. I mean, you know, look, if you, if you are sort of a, you know, uh, uh, a queer intellectual, that's... You know, I'm, and <laughs> that's that, that's not really the best uh, uh, properties to have uh, <laughs> in the face of you know right radical movements. Um, uh, you know, they have a very very homophobic agenda, mm. and uh, they're anti-intellectual. Um, by the way, with very intellectual writers on the right themselves, so there's a paradox about that. Um, but um, uh, I, I would say at least I'm hated for something I do. <laughs> um, no, I think I, I, I seriously think I think that's a privilege. Many, many, many other people are just hated yeah. and rejected and criminalized, you know, for their skin color or, 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 or you know. So, so it is about my writing and it's about expressing my desire uh, that I get these you know, letters and threats and, and all that. Uh, and I was... Um, but that's not, you know, I'm, I'm not very special in that. Many, it happens to many, many, many people uh, at the moment in Europe. And mm. so that's not something particular about me. Mm. I bet you have questions. I'm assuming you do. So um, if you'd like to ask some questions, we've got a microphone just up here on the top. And there's another one just here. So if you wanted to ask a question, feel free to ask Carolyn and stand up and, and, and go crazy. But while you're going out, let's just give Carolyn a round of applause because she's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and we'll keep to question, uh, as many questions as we possibly can over the next 20 minutes. So thank you so much. Go for it. Um, thank you so much for being so honest and real. Like, it's extremely refreshing. Um, I think I wanted to ask more about labels. I think a lot of people in the queer community really struggle with, are we meant to label ourselves? Is it, like, okay not to when we represent ourselves, maybe in a more, uh, I don't know, hidden manner? Obviously, some communities don't appreciate queer people, so it's kind of like, how do you, how do you go about the world of everyone wanting to put you in a box and label you, um, how do you kind of navigate a world as a young person or an older person um, with, with the labels that exist? How do you work around labels? Uh, thanks very much. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer. And um, on one hand, uh, I would say I can't really recommend something on general terms because, as you rightfully said, there are contexts uh, where it's extremely difficult to be open uh, about one's own desire. I mean, uh, 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 it was mentioned, I mean, I travelled a lot 
Uh, and, you know, I, there were countries that I traveled to where I had to lie every single day because otherwise I would have either risked my life or the lives of the people who, who were with me. So I would never, ever, you know, be dogmatic about, you know, how to, how to describe yourself, how open to be, how, how articulate to be about, what, you know, your own desire. And uh, then I think the tricky thing about... Uh, about labels is um, that on one hand uh, I would say they never fit. Uh, I would always say uh, if somebody asked me what does it mean to be queer I would to some extent say well it means to be always displaced always in exile and yet it's so much fun in that place. <laughs> That's called exile. And um, at the same, so I would say, look, if you ask me what do I think is important about myself, about my own identity, I would say I love, you know, I think my love for Bach is probably more relevant, I don't know, probably, uh, than <gasps> my partner is not listening, is she? <laughs> uh, than something else. So I, so I do think there is something repressive and, and disconcerting about these labels. And yet, uh, whenever I am in a homophobic context, I am so queer as it gets. <laughs> because evidently, it is a political question. I mean, you know, there are contexts when you can say, you know, it, this is just me as a, you know, complex individual with all, all my... Uh, desires or all my, my curiosities or all my interests or passions. Uh, and then there are contexts where it doesn't matter to the others. So that's a social category. It's not an individual category anymore. And so uh, in that sense, uh, you know, I, I, I do accept the labels. I take the labels. I make them my own. And, and I try to argue with them and arguing with them against a certain kind of usage of that label. I don't know. That, does that help or does it? Oh, okay. So. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Um, do we have a... We haven't got a question at the top here. Um, if you have a question, please do go to the microphones. Thank you so much down here. Thank you. Um, hello. Um, my question is about desire itself. Um, how do we account for it? Where does it come from? Um, queer or otherwise? And... To what extent can we see it as intersecting with other forms of social construction? Good. I think um, there's one aspect uh, of desire where I would say it's very similar to faith in the sense of it being uncontrollable. I cannot choose to believe in God and I cannot choose not to believe in God. It's, it's, it's something I can't control. And I would say something similar about desire, or you know, that there is something about it that is not mine to decide. Sometimes that's exactly why we suffer so much, because we desire someone who doesn't desire us, or we can't stop desiring someone. Um, so there's, there's, there's that aspect about it. And yet I'm afraid um, there's evidently also 
at the same time something that's heavily socially constructed and sort of I think the images of whom we even consider to be objects of our desire is so preformed and configured by you know ideological constellations by sort of you know pop cultural constellations and I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't know even for myself to say, well, what made me desire that person? You know, how much impact does my class have, my, you know, my whiteness have? You know, so, so I think it's extremely difficult for oneself to reconstruct or analyze where a certain desire came from in relation to these formative forces of ideology, of religion, and of class and race. Excellent. Any other questions? Am I... Well, don't feel shy while I continue to ask another question if you're going up to the microphone. Um, don't be shy. So, um, I wanted to actually ask about marriage, um, because in Australia we were granted... Um, Uh, the the choice to marry um, only last year in I, I don't know if you've heard much about the debate that went on we, there was a sort of a, a global global national uh, postal vote where everybody got to say yes or no uh, and it was something that was for many people within the gay LGBTQ community were really uh, found really depressing very uh, hard to cope with as well and I wondered if I could get some perspective from you on 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 that, because to me it's about, and you made some interesting films actually about this very topic, about tolerance, this idea that we were going to be allowed to marry, that we were yeah. going to be tolerated as well. Can I get your perspective? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm highly sceptical about the term tolerance and the practice. Um, it's always asymmetrical. It always implies that someone is generous enough, <laughs> uh, you know, to tolerate something that otherwise would be responded to with aversion. So I don't want to be tolerated. And um, what I uh, think is, is highly, you know, evidently I wasn't here, I didn't experience the, the discourse on gay marriage here in Australia, but it seems highly, uh, you know, ambiguous to me that others are allowed to decide whether... I can get married, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I think that's the beauty of living in a liberal secular society, if it were a liberal secular society, um, <laughs> is that, you know, they are plural in the sense of, I don't have to like how you live your life. I just have to accept the fact that there are people who are, different mm. in their desires or in their faiths or in, you know, in, in how they go about their lives. And so what I f find slightly um, disturbing about this thought of having a national discourse on my life. Um, now, evidently, I could also argue I don't see at all the point why the state should grant the right to marriage at all. I mean, I could question what interest is it to the state 
to promote the institution of marriage. I would understand that a state might have an interest in supporting children, you know, you know I, I, meaning, meaning with tax legislations and, you know, and, and all the legality that, that at the moment is bestowed on the institution of marriage. Um, I, I, I would question that. I would say it, it, it seems to make much more sense to me to say any household that has children, whatever kind of household that is, then gets support and, you know. Uh, but I don't really see why the state should have any interest mm. uh, in, you know, bestowing these rights on the institution of marriage. But having said that, I would say, of course, as long as it is that way, I want gays also to be able to, to, to get married. Um, now, uh, we also finally got it, uh, and um, Parliament uh, voted on it last year, I think, I think last year, and I should say uh, our Chancellor, Angela Merkel, voted against it. Yes, you, saw, you said the, before that you could see the red card going into the no box. Yes, visibly. Right? I mean, nobody visibly. knew how the various MPs would decide uh, but you could watch it live on television, so you could see who had a green card and who had a red one. And we, we were all totally stunned mm. to see Angela Merkel with a red card voting, you know, opposing gay marriage. Mm. Thank you so much for your question. G'day. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm interested to get your view on how desire changes as we age and what we desire as teenagers changes as we move into our adult and, and older years. I'd be really keen to get your view on. Uh, thanks very much. That's, a, that's, that's actually a big part of my book is about that question. It is about um, that part of the problem of labels also is that you know, that we ourselves then tend to think we could only desire in a certain way and that that couldn't change anymore. And um, as I said earlier, I was extremely slow uh, in uh, desiring women. I, 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 until I was 25, uh, I only had relationships with men and then uh, with women. And so I have the experience already of, you know, of a transformation of that desire, or of a different understanding of the desire, maybe. Um, and um, I would never, I, mean, I, I think I would never be able to say it could never happen in my life that that desire would change again. Um, I always say jokingly, Brad Pitt, come on. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about but, You know, that's a joke. That's a joke piece. Uh, um, but it, it was very interesting when I, when I published the book in Germany, I somehow expected that only women or queers of my generation would respond to the book. I thought I had written a book for sort of a niche audience. And I was very surprised to, to receive letters and letters and letters and letters from people who were much older than I was and who basically thought with my book about their own upbringing, about the culture and the ideology and the political context in which their desire was shaped. And it was extremely moving. It was like a history of sexuality of my society because, because, you know, different people from different ages, also straight uh, people wrote to me. So I do think that um, 
just as our understanding of ourselves changes, just as our bodies change, our ability, at least in my case, I would also say our ability to be more precise about what I really want uh, and daring to say it, um, I think that in itself was a big change. Uh, for me, and for example, I'm 50-something now, <laughs> and I do not fancy being 30 again. <laughs> and I don't know, no, no, but I mean, and it has to do with... I, I can't say it better, I, I, I would say it has to do with, with, with understanding understanding in more precise ways how I want to articulate myself or how I want to articulate my own desire. And that, for me, is already something that, that's a very big change in, 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 in the way I, I, I uh, experience desire. And I, and I think that is something that is um, not that often talked about because I think there's a certain misconception of desires if it would either, if one could fix it in a certain way or keep it, under, you know, I don't know, under control. And the other one is, I think, the, the idea that you could get older and the desire could get better, I don't think that's presented in popular culture very often. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and we've got time for one more question up the top here. Thank you. Hi. Is there a defining characteristic to who you desire? Um, for I, example... I didn't get the question. Can you, can you repeat the question? Sure. Is there a defining characteristic to who you desire? Characteristic? Yeah. For, for example, when I think of who I have desired in the past, some are fat, some are thin, some are outgoing some are quiet, they're always very different. And I wonder if you've found that throughout life there is, there's a characteristic that you're drawn to or whether that changes. No, I, can, I, I, I couldn't say at all. I, I, I might have said people mumble. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, uh, mm. no, I couldn't tell. The things that... Um, Maybe people who listen to techno music, that wouldn't really work well. <laughs> it's only because Heavy you metal, live in Berlin. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but, but no, I, I, I couldn't. Mm, certainly. Uh, the, thank you so much. The, the, can you just talk, just to finish with a bit of music, because the one description in the book that I really loved, which talked about the continuum of desire, which made a lot of sense to me, was when you, when you talked about modulation in music. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. What does that mean and how does that work? Um, okay, how much time do I have? You got um, um, mod seconds. Modulation is a term in classical music uh, that describes a musical piece um, starting in a particular musical key and changing the key uh, over the course of the musical piece. Um, now, the interesting thing about modulation is sometimes uh, the, the musical piece ends in that second, 
the new key. Sometimes it modulates back to the original key. And um, it is interesting because all kinds of harmonies that you might have leading up from one key to another are very, very ambiguous. They could belong to one or they could belong to, uh, to another. And so I felt this is very much a uh, description of how desire can develop and can change and can transform, that you have practices that could belong to either key, that are highly ambiguous, that are not that easily you know, uh, decipherable, uh, that are very open. And it's a moving, it's, it's a very dynamic uh, uh, description of, of what, well, what musical keys are, what modulation is, and I, uh, did think it was the best description I could find. It's a fantastic description. The idea that all of us in this room are basically just a key change. <laughs> a very good one indeed. <laughs> I am just kidding. Um, uh, fascinating to, to speak with you, Carolyn Emke. Uh, the book, again, it's called How We Desire, all about women. Would you please thank the one and only Carolyn Emke? Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot.